Traveling the Vortex Side Trip And welcome back to another side trip. My name is Sean. I'm one-third of the podcast, Traveling the Vortex, which we normally cover Doctor Who and its related programming. Today we are stepping aside, as I have done several times in the past, due to popular demand, and I thank you for that. And we are, well, we're covering a, a, a probably very interesting and possibly my favorite slice of the Star Trek universe. This is Star Trek 301, which indicates that we are doing Deep Space Nine. Now, Deep Space Nine is the brainchild of Rick Berman and Michael Piller, uh, created at the behest of Brandon Tartikoff, head of Paramount, because, well, strike while the iron is hot. We've had, uh, you know, five seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation that have been extremely popular, it's a fantastic syndicated run. Star Trek is a name in and of itself, and we want more of it. So, yes, we can do this. And so following that success, the uh, new show was uh, commissioned, and there were elements drawn from Next Generation, uh, namely the conflict between the Cardassians and the Bajorans. And that kind of became the foundation for most of the show's um, drama. It was the first show to be created without the uh, direct involvement of series creator Gene Roddenberry. And it was also the first to uh, forego a starship and uh, set all the action on a space station. Um, the adage at the time was that if Star Trek was conceived as a wagon train to the stars, then Deep Space Nine would be Bonanza. The action would come to them. Uh, and also of note is the first to have a person of color as its central character. In this case, Commander, later Captain, Benjamin Sisko, uh, wonderfully played by Avery Brooks. The biggest difference between Deep Space Nine and its previous uh, installments in the Trek franchise is where Star Trek is kind of known for being very episodic. Uh, I've said before, we have a problem A on planet B that needs to be signed, uh, to, uh, solved in time frame C. And you, uh, you go through the motions, and then everything kind of resets at the end of that particular um, story. Deep Space Nine was the first to really explore a serialized format. Um, things that happened in Episode 1 had ramifications throughout the show. Uh, and something that came up in an episode would definitely be called back to time and time again, to the point where there was a series-long arc that dealt with um, a, a great war um, between the Federation and the Dominion uh, that basically wound up kind of spilling over into the entire Alpha Quadrant. It wasn't just these two great powers going at it. It was every great power going at it. And uh, uh, what an interesting thing to do. Now, Deep Space Nine gets criticized a lot for a lot of different reasons. And one of the things that it gets criticized for is that darker storytelling. 
uh, there's a darker tone to the proceedings in general. And a lot of people think that it kind of flies in the face of Roddenberry's um, maybe oversimplified, saccharine-coded, by this time we all get along. And there's certainly something to be said for the challenges in writing a show where everybody is hunky-dory. Uh, all of the next-gen writers would frequently complain that by having perfect characters, it's very difficult to create drama for said characters. Now, realistically, they did it quite successfully for seven years, so I, I don't know how difficult that really was for them, but I, I get where they're coming from. You want your characters to be more interesting than the squeaky clean Starfleet officers that the majority of the next time frame represents. You want them to be a little flawed. You want them to have dark secrets. You want them to have things that, uh, you know, make them more relatable, that they're not perfect, that they can be fallible. And that's something that Deep Space Nine had in spades. Every character in this show is flawed. These are all broken people. And in my mind, that makes them supremely interesting and just an absolute joy to hang out with. And yes, they are very relatable. The other thing that Deep Space Nine would uh, frequently gets um, berated for is that by setting the action on the station, um, a lot of people feel that the show became stagnant right off the bat that you were relying on, you know, things to come to you, that you, you suddenly had to, you, you couldn't go explore. You were being very reactionary to things as they came up. And to a certain extent, yes, that's true. However, there are two things that happened that um, helped to alleviate that. One is the discovery of the wormhole. Um, there is a stable wormhole just off Bajor where our action is set, and uh, it leads to the Gamma Quadrant, which is a completely new area of space that uh, we've not explored a lot of. Keep in mind, and this is something that's still kind of mind-boggling, that for the majority of the Star Trek time frame, for all of the hundreds of years that the Federation has been in existence, by the time we get up to the next-gen time frame, we're still dealing with about 19 to 25% of an explored galaxy. So, all of those well-known planets, Earth, Vulcan, uh, Kronos, uh, you know, all of that is about one quarter of the galaxy of the Milky Way. So there's still tons of things out there that we don't know. And the Gamma Quadrant just happens to be one of them. So by having this stable wormhole that allows passage back and forth between the Alpha Quadrant or the Beta Quadrant, uh, and the um, the Gamma Quadrant, you are suddenly opening up a large chunk of unknown worlds that suddenly have access to us, and we have access to them, and it becomes a very interesting dynamic. It also falls back into the political landscape that Deep Space Nine did so well to set up. The Cardassian Empire occupied Bajor, um, very much uh, a similar... Uh, plight to uh, what was happening in the real world with Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, that they just kind of moved in, set up shop, and were there. Now, in Star Trek's case, this happened many years ago. 
And then the Cardassians pulled out. They finally decided they had plundered enough of Bajor's natural resources and its people, and, uh, you know, were having some interior political problems of their own, and that the, you know, galactic stage of, uh, you know, occupying this planet was really not, it just was becoming not worth it anymore. So they left. And when they pulled out, uh, Bajor reached out to the Federation for help. Uh, and what's interesting is there's a lot of uh, animosity there. Um, the Federation had not stepped in previously because to do so would have been inviting war with the Cardassians. Now, we've always been adversarial with the Cardassians. They're not exactly friends anyway, but it would have been open warfare. So the Federation played a very hands-off policy when it came to Bajor, and a lot of Bajorans resented that, and I can't say I blame them, uh, you know. I don't know if there was an official call for action. I don't remember that. But I, I do remember that there were several characters that always brought it up and kind of threw it back in the Federation's face that you're not going to be good for us. And um, so the Federation steps in to help uh, in an administrative role to try and, you know, guide the Bajorans back to self-rule. And they take over the, uh, the, the Cardassian space station, Terok Nor, which was an ore processing facility in which a lot of Bajorans died. Uh, it was used as slave labor camp uh, to mine this ore. And when the Cardassians pulled out, they tore it up and left it in an absolute shambles because they didn't want to leave anything terribly usable for the Federation. But they cobbled it together and uh, and kind of held it together over the course of seven seasons, uh, largely thanks to Chief Miles O'Brien. Now, any deep, uh, deep Space Nine fan, of course, knows that O'Brien came from, from Next Gen. He's a direct carryover uh, transporter chief, now chief of operations. He's also the first non-commissioned officer uh, to be widely featured as a, a regular on a Star Trek series. So that was kind of cool. And anything with Cole Meany. Any excuse to bring Cole Meany in as a regular is, is, a, is, a, is a blessing. And um, so Cole Meany, uh, as O'Brien, kind of sets things in motion in many ways with just the nuts and the bolts of dealing with this behemoth of Cardassian architecture. And um, I want to throw a side note out here for the production design. There was a lot of thought that went into this because we're dealing with a Cardassian space station. Okay, so now we have to know what a Cardassian engineer thinks like, because how would he design the space station? How would she, you know, put things? Where would the bulkheads be? What shape are the doors? Why are the windows the, the way that they are? And all of that thought process went into designing this, this, uh, this steel spider hanging out in space. And it's fascinating to me because the attention to detail is there. It does not look like a Federation ship. Regardless of how Federation it is, how many Federation officers we put in, how much of the hierarchy and the, the logistics that we deal with that are Starfleet, it does not look like a Starfleet vessel. It is alien. And it, I think, helps to establish the mood that helps keep all of these broken characters on edge because they're not in familiar settings. They're not in the neutrals, uh, in the beige, and the earth tones that, uh, that were popular on the Enterprise. 
they are in this very dark, foreboding, um, cramped in some ways, despite its immense size. Uh, and the, the production design of Deep Space Nine is bar none some of the absolute best in science fiction. And it's such a striking, uh, striking contrast when you get to an episode that, say, they take one of the runabouts out, which is kind of a beefed-up shuttlecraft, and all of a sudden you are back into that Starfleet aesthetic with uh, the familiar acutograms and, and things that, you know, their, their panels and, uh, and all of that nature. And the lighting is different, and, and just so much attention to detail to little details like that really help drive this show. So we, uh, we meet Ben Sisko, um, who is a commander who has been placed in charge of the space station, and he is there to help facilitate things. Sisko is another broken individual. He uh, served as first officer on board a starship that was destroyed by the Borg at the Battle of Wolf 359. And he gets his marching orders in the first episode from Captain Picard. Now imagine, if you will, that uh, your wife died in that attack, and you are now a single father raising a son, and the man responsible for it is the one telling you, oh, you're going to go take over this new post. Yeah, there's some animosity there. And uh, it's played wonderfully. Um, Avery Brooks has this simmering anger that bubbles just beneath the surface of his exterior. And uh, it, it's always entertaining when he allows it to, to come to the surface, when you get a glimpse of just how pissed off this guy is. He's very Hawk Spencer for hire. Not quite off the bat. He takes a, a couple seasons to kind of grow into that, but it's there. Um, Major Kira is uh, the Bajoran attache, uh, just phenomenally performed by uh, Nana Visitor. And uh, the chemistry between the two of them is fantastic because he's very Starfleet and very straight-laced and very, we're going to go do things this way. And she, of course, is... Uh, not. She's a Bajoran. She is essentially a, they're called freedom fighters because they were responsible for striking back against the Cardassian oppressors, but essentially she's a terrorist who is now in charge of some things, and they have such an interesting dynamic. The rest of the cast is just as fantastic. Uh, Terry Farrell plays Dax, a, uh, a symbiote, one of the Trill, a joined species, who knew Avery, or uh, excuse me, knew Cisco in her previous uh, incarnation as Curzon. So they're old friends, even though, you know, he's never met this woman before. Uh, the security chief is Odo, a shapeshifter, uh, just the heart and soul of Rene Abergewan, who is phenomenal. And uh, he was there during the Cardassian occupation, and he is still there kind of performing the same duties. And some people are not too wild about that. His main foil is Quark, uh, Armin Shimmerman. Now, Armin played one of the original Ferengi in the very first episode uh, that the Ferengi showed up in back on Next Gen. And uh, he played one of them then and was off the chance to come back and kind of refine the species. And as he put it, you know, putting his feet into the wet cement, as it were, uh, of being the first. 
But one of the things about the Ferengi in Next Gen is they're quite laughable. They were meant to be this big spacefaring race that could give the Federation a run for their money, and it just never worked. They were best played for laughs. And so very quickly, they got relegated to the sidelines and only made a handful of appearances in the show as basically as comic relief. And Deep Space Nine set out to correct that. And they really explored Ferengi culture and politics and why they were the way they were. And they fixed everything. It's retroactive fixes, but it, it just makes the Ferengi that much more interesting. I never liked the Ferengi on Next Gen. I love Ferengi episodes on Deep Space Nine. Huge difference. Alexander Sadig comes in as uh, Dr. Bashir. Um, Julian is a, uh, you know, he's looking forward to practicing frontiers medicine uh, and, and sees this all as kind of a great adventure. Very wet behind the ears, officer. And um, then Kirk Lofton, who plays Cisco's son. Uh, and the struggles that he's going through moving to this, you know, out-of-the-way, middle-of-nowhere outpost that suddenly becomes the center of everywhere. And the, that's, that's, just the, uh, that's just the good guys, as it were. Um, you, you've also got a fantastic group of guest stars that come in to um, just create characters to die for. Uh, leading that list is Mark Alamo who plays uh, Gold Dukat. He's the former Cardassian who was in charge of the space station. And now that he's left and the wormhole has been discovered, the Cardassians are very keen into, oops, we kind of screwed that up, didn't we? Let's go get back over there. And so he becomes the, the you know, kind of a main foil for Cisco throughout the run. Um, Aaron Eisenberg plays Nog as uh, Quark's nephew and uh, a younger Ferengi who becomes very close to Jake thus prompting some issues uh, with, with Cisco. Do I want my son hanging out with the Ferengi? Is that the wrong attitude to have because it's kind of speciesist? Um, and then uh, <laughs> creme, creme de la creme, Andrew Robinson. Um, Elam Garrick, just plain Garrick, uh, who is a disgraced Cardassian spy uh, who stayed behind when the Cardassians pulled out. And his excuse for staying behind is that he's a disgrace and they don't want him. But because he's a spy, everybody kind of assumes that he is still working for the Cardassian Empire, keeping tabs on things. And he strikes up a relationship with Bashir, and the two become very close friends. And uh, some people think they should have gone further, and there's definitely, definitely tones of... Uh, of a gay relationship that could have gone on uh, between the two of them, and I, for one, wish they had. I think it. I think it. I think it adds one more layer uh, of of interest to Garrick, who is. You talk about onions having layers. Garrick is an onion from hell. There are so many layers to this dude to peel away, and I think giving him a, a, a making him a gay character, which is implied but never spelled out. And then having him have that kind of relationship with the young doctor, I think, is is just a wonderful what could have been. Um, and then again, you've, you've got so many other people. Uh, you, you've got uh, Rosalind Cho, who plays Keiko Bryan, uh, uh, the chief's wife. You've got Wallace Shawn, 
I mean, Vicini from The Princess Bride shows up as the Grand Nagus leader of the Ferengi. Um, Louise Fletcher, uh, Robert O'Reilly, Chase Masterson, Jeffrey Combs, for Pete's sake, comes up in this show at one point in time. J.G. Herzog. The list goes on of just absolutely phenomenal actors who, who step in and take over roles. And what Deep Space Nine really became synonymous with over the course of its run was the character development, that not only were we going to give our characters something to do, we were going to make them interesting in how they went about doing it. And you were going to see an arc for each character. And once we did that for all of our main characters, we're going to do that for all of our side note characters. All of the minor characters have arcs, and they become just as important, if not in some cases more so, than the main crew. Followed by, well, what do you do after that? Well, we're going to invent some new characters. We have a hologram. Vic Fontaine, he's not even a real person, but you're going to get invested in his story arc, and we're going to give him an arc over the course of the run. That's how good this show is. And if I start to sound like I am just fanboying all over it, I am. And you may think to yourself, oh, it can't be that good, Sean. It is. Asking someone, especially a true Star Trek fan, so what's your favorite show? It's a bit like asking somebody, so which of your children is your favorite? It's an impossible question to answer. But if you pinned me down, Deep Space Nine, all day, every day, is the best Star Trek series ever made. And quite honestly, as much as I love Next Gen, as much as I love the original series, as much as I love some of the follow-up series that have come since, Nothing comes close. That's how good this show is. So as is tradition, um, when I do one of these, I kind of give you my uh, my top five of the season, that if you're going to watch this show, you, you absolutely positively have to watch these episodes. And if you choose to watch the rest of it, good on you. Um, very quickly, since <laughs> I've spent so much time talking about the show in general at this point, um, I will, I will, I will list those for you. And um, first on the list is emissary, and emissary is the pilot. Now, what makes this interesting is that in the history of Star Trek, Star Trek has never had a good pilot episode. When you think back of pilot episodes, and you look at, you know, look at the cage, which was just so great that uh, we want you to go back and do that again because we're not sold on it. Wow, okay. Uh, <laughs> so the cage is replaced with where no man has gone before. And it's it's good, but it, I, I think in the annals of, of, of pilot episodes, it's just kind of there. And then we, we get a whole bunch of cast changes, so it's still not a good mix of what's actually going to happen in the show. Look at Mighty Next Gen. What's their pilot? Encounter at Farpoint. Oh, God, are you kidding me? That is such a chore to watch. It's there. It sets up everything. But, man, it's it's just so painful at times to watch Encounter at Farpoint. And the list goes on. Deep Space Nine comes along and has several benefits. First of all, we're not setting up a new show. Next Gen is a completely new show. Yes, it's set in the Star Trek universe, and it's a follow-up. But it's, you know, 78 years later. So it has nothing that really ties it in other than Star Trek 
Federation, Starfleet, Enterprise. That's pretty much all the holdover bits that you get that they had to work with. Everything else is, you know, new stuff. Deep Space Nine is set during the same time frame, so they were able to pull not only characters like O'Brien and Keiko, um, and eventually Worf, but uh, they're not able to pull not only characters, but also situations, uh, political affiliations, uh, plot threads, things that were happening that we were that were being established during Next Gen's time frame suddenly became relevant to this new show, and it really helped to expand the universe. There's a lot of world building that goes on in pilots, which is why they tend to be so dry. Well, Deep Space Nine had a good chunk of that already done for it. And so the tone of this pilot is completely different. Yes, we're going off to this other area of space that we're not totally familiar with. And yes, it's Star Trek, but it's going to be wildly different from the Star Trek you're used to. But at the same time, it's still Star Trek. It still has a Federation and a Klingon Empire and Cardassians and, you know, all these things that are familiar. And, and it, Emissary really capitalizes on that. The second thing that works for it is it introduces us to all of these players, all of these different characters, but they're so captivating you find yourself, I can't wait for the next episode to see what happens to so-and-so. And that is a, a joy. When you get that reaction from a TV show, yeah, I'm here for the long haul. Very rarely do, you know, you get a show and you go, well, the pilot was okay. I guess I'll try a couple more episodes and see what happens. Well, sometimes you wind up with a great show. Firefly did that to me. And sometimes you wind up with a show that's, you know, yeah, I, I gave up on it after, you know, first season or halfway through the first season. No, Deep Space Nine was every episode. was like, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do now? Couldn't wait. So Emissary gets so many things right and is absolutely one that, uh, that, that should be watched. Uh, next up on my list is Past Prologue, which is actually the second episode. Uh, <laughs> the reason this works, and, and don't get me wrong, there's some, some bumps and warp, uh, warts, as it were. Uh, but what makes this work is it's the appearance of Garrick, who is such a fundamentally cool character and such a, an amazing creation that it was after this episode they asked him back. He wasn't initially meant to be a, a, a recurring character. But because his, he was so strong in this, and because Andrew Robinson is just you know, that cool, he becomes a, a going on. So you absolutely have to watch this in order to know what's going on with Garrick. Um, but it, it's, just, it's, just, it's just phenomenal. It's just such a good character. Um, next up, I would say Progress. And progress is one that I very much enjoy, uh, and it uh, it's easy to dismiss it as kind of a, a throwaway because so much of it deals with Jake and Nog and uh, the self-sealing stem bolts that they're trying to uh, to con people into buying. And yes, there's a, that's the B plot. There's a lot of that kind of uh, that, that's going around. But what really makes it work, there's an elderly farmer named Mullabach who refuses to evacuate one of the moons of Bajor. And Bajor plans to tap the core of this moon to provide energy. And when they do that, the moon will become uninhabitable. Now, 
he is, um, first of all, <laughs> Brian Keith plays this character who is, you know, okay, you've got this acting legend on, on the show. Great. But he draws so many parallels between his plight and Kira's during the Cardassian occupation and really kind of shows her some things that she, she becomes very close to him almost as a, a grandfather. And, um, they bond and he, 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 he simply refuses to leave. I'll die on this moon. I don't care who kills me. If it's the Cardassians or if it's the Bajorans, I'm, I'm here to stay. And the ending of this episode is heartbreaking, and I won't spoil it. But it's it's a it's a it's a powerhouse bit of acting. It's a powerhouse bit of uh, directing, and it's uh, it's so well put together. Um, next up is in the hands of the prophets. Now this is uh, the the last episode of the season. Episode 20 it was kind of a, I can't even say it's a half season, but it was a, a shorter season to start with. And um, this one kind of continues the religious themes that are introduced in Emissary. There are aliens that live in the wormhole, and they kind of live outside of time. Uh, time to them is a, a, a foreign construct. They don't really understand this linear existence of ours where... Um, effect follows cause. That just doesn't make sense to them. And Cisco, when he discovers the wormhole, winds up fulfilling a Bajoran prophecy and becomes the emissary. Hence the title of the first episode. Uh, and he is a religious figure to the Bajorans, which of course makes him very uncomfortable and makes Starfleet very uncomfortable. Well, In the Hands of the Prophets introduces us to <laughs> the uh, religious rite of Bajor, played by Louise Fletcher. Now, film buffs will know Louise Fletcher. She was uh, an Academy Award winner for her performance as Nurse Ratched in the phenomenal One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. She is such a good actress that when she shows up on Deep Space Nine and the big gigantic gear wheel trundles out of the way and she strides onto the station with her little wrinkled Bajoran nose makeup and the big flowing robes and I see her, my immediate reaction is, you, and I hate this woman right off the bat. I don't know who this character is. I hate her. Because you got Louise Fletcher to play, and that's very unfair to Louise Fletcher, uh, because she's a lovely person. But that's how effective she was in that movie. That she just immediately triggered my, I don't like you. You're no good. You're going to cause problems if you're showing up. Response. To the producer's credit, Kai Wynn is exactly that character. She shows up and causes problems for everybody on the station. She is smarmy and self-righteous and one of the best villains that has ever walked across a television screen. Uh, and I will, I will champion her till the end of time because she was just as good in this as she, she was in, uh, in Cuckoo's Nest. 
and in the hands of the prophets as an episode really taps into where she's coming from in an attempt to be the next, uh, you know, kind of basically the Bajoran Pope and um, how Cisco being regarded as the emissary and triggering this prophecy kind of screwed all that up for her. And it, it's, the, oh man, there's, there's some good drama that goes down in this one. Uh, and lastly on my list of, of absolute must-watches is the previous episode, Duet. And it's another great Kira episode uh, in which she is uh, compelled to confront a Cardassian war criminal. Uh, imagine, uh, if you will, a man uh, who is revealed to be a Nazi and responsible for so many uh, horrible things during, uh, uh, during World War II. Uh, that's kind of where they're going with with this. Except the man might be lying about his identity. This creates quite the dilemma for Kira. And again, the performancing... Uh, here is is it's just off the charts with uh, how good the the acting is in this episode, and it, the drama just drips from 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 everything. It is you know to that level of, of wow, uh, and and so that is great. Uh, a couple of honorable mentions uh, include uh, Captive Pursuit in which uh, O'Brien kind of sidesteps a few uh, <laughs> rules and regulations in order to help a uh, prey <laughs> that wanders onto the station that is being hunted by a group of hunters. Um, the Nagus, in uh, which uh, the, the Grand Nagus of the Ferengi shows up and uh, we get a, a look into the politics of Ferenginar. And surprisingly, I think a lot of people... Um, or maybe not, I would say Vortex, uh, which is not one that I think general fandom uh, would tend to list anywhere. Um, but uh, there's a visitor that comes through from the Gamma Quadrant whom Odo arrests for murder. And then the guy says, oh yeah, I've met changelings before, just like you. And, uh, well, Odo suddenly extradites him to get him out of the trouble that he set up in order to learn more about who he is as a changeling. That's kind of Odo's thing. He doesn't doesn't know where he came from. I think it's a I think it's a fascinating episode. Now, as with most Star Treks, there are hits and misses. There are some that just don't work quite as well. And I think probably the best example of that is Q-less, in which John Delancey as Q shows up on the station uh, with Vash in tow. This is after he took Vash off with him uh, in the next gen time frame. Uh, and uh, said, I'll show you the galaxy. Well, they show up uh, here and uh, cause all kinds of problems. The episode's very uneven, and it focuses, quite honestly, far too much on Vash and not nearly enough on Q. And where Q and Picard's relationship started adversarial and became, um, you know, I don't want to say friends, but they, they, they had an understanding, as it were. Um, Q and Cisco do not hit it off. In, in fact, very famously, uh, Cisco belts him. And Q says, Picard never hit me. And Cisco replies, well, I'm not Picard. And it kind of sets the tone for, 
you don't mess with this guy. And consequently, Q does not return to the station after this. <laughs> um, but I think it's an example of maybe trying to dip too liberally into the what came before uh, that this episode gets, uh, you know, gets it gets it wrong quite a bit. Um, and it's unfortunate because I, I think there, there, there certainly could have been some fun here, but it's, it's, it's a little bland. And for a Q episode, if you, if you have Q in your episode, what you do not want it described as is bland. Now, having said that, um, the Deep Space Nine season one is still, even with the misses that are present, things like Q's, it's still probably the strongest first season of any Star Trek series. Because even the dogs are not terrible. They might be a little uneven. They might be a little sluggish. They might be a little, oh, you're just setting up character X to do problem Y. But they, they're done in such a way that you, you kind of still buy into it. And I think overall, by the end of the first season, it's still an enjoyable ride. I, th I think it's far more enjoyable than Next Gen Season 1, which just feels like a god-awful slog to get to the end of. Um, and maybe the fact that it's missing about six episodes has something to do with it because they are a little bit shorter. Maybe it's the characters, uh, or the situations that they put them in. But for whatever reason, I, I just think that, um, it's one of those things that the critics of the show are very quick to jump on that. And I think they are wrong. I think they are, are using an excuse to kind of, uh, you know, hate block a show that, well, it's just not next gen. And I think that's where a lot of that comes from. I think once those people were to sit down and watch Deep Space Nine, um, you know, it gets good. And, yeah, there's a little bit of the, you know, well, it doesn't get good until season three. It's like, eh, there's a certain amount of truth to any series that does that. But I, I disagree again with Deep Space Nine. I think while it may not get to what you would consider the good stuff until later, it's good from the get-go. And that, to me, is also one of the reasons why it's a show that I can go back to uh, at any point in time in reruns or, or, or actually pulling the, the DVDs off the shelf and go back to it and boot it up from the beginning and just be like, man, this was a great series. So there is that. Um, prattled on a little too long, but that's okay. Uh, with this show, I think it's, I think it's worth it. Um, and there's 126 hours of it. So if you are really excited uh, about starting a new Star Trek and you've not seen any of this, then by all means, um, here's, here, here you go. Um, for anybody who is concerned, because you have enjoyed my looks at the Star Trek world, uh, yes, I will be going back and finishing off Next Gen. And if there is still demand, yes, I will go forward and attempt to Voyager and Enterprise and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But let's not put the cart before the horse. Let's, you know, in, in many ways, I started doing these specifically to get to Deep Space Nine. That's how excited I am to do this. Um, so there is that. Once again, as uh, Glenn points out on Traveling the Vortex, if you find any value at all in what we do here, or if this has uh, you know, been satisfying in any way, shape, or form, please consider putting some value back into it. You can reach out and donate some money through our Patreon page, uh, and that is uh, available. And you can also try out our Doctor Who offerings. Uh, obviously, again, Traveling the Vortex is a Doctor Who podcast, which we do just about weekly. 
uh, and we're coming up on our big 500th episode, if you can believe we've been doing it for that long. Uh, and then uh, we also have uh, a, a liaison with uh, Sci-Fi For Me TV, where we do a video cast called Tardis Sauce. And we kind of have a rotating group of guests, uh, including us. We're not on every episode, because that would get boring. But uh, a rotating group of guests to talk Doctor Who over there. So if you need a Who fix, there are outlets to do so. Um, thank you so much to everyone out there for all of your love and support. Uh, and uh, keep listening. And until next time, I'm Sean signing off. You have been listening to Traveling the Vortex. Doctor Who and all of its associated programs are owned and trademarked by the BBC. No infringement is intended or implied.